This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of experience who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips, proven frameworks, and share ways to help you delight your customers. Today's episode is part two of two with Rob Markey from Bain. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. We covered some really interesting topics as we do on this episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about the definition of customer experience, according to Rob Markey, the evolution of an NPS in the digital world and what its relevance will be, in his opinion, going forward. Will technology eliminate the need for the MPS system? And is it moral and ethical to treat every customer the same? His answer may surprise you. Take a listen on another fantastic episode with Rob Markey. Let's jump right in. Well, we are back with part two of two with Rob Markey. Last time we had a really fascinating discussion, laid the groundwork for NPS talked about the room where it happened, uh, where it got where it got discovered, and in, in Rob's initial skepticism about it, and then he became a believer. Uh, not only not only became a believer, but um, helped proliferate it across corporate America, and helps us really all of us. In the last episode, we talked about understanding um, why it is why it is so powerful, both in terms of the quantitative research on where the inflection points uh, made, made sense and where they drew uh, naturally, and also the simplicity and beauty of it, um, how it really, and I can speak firsthand of how, you know, there's so many battles as a CX practitioner in an organization, often going uh, up against big waves, and you've got something that everybody can understand. NPS, by the way, we didn't talk about this open source, yeah, that was a that was a right. controversial decision inside of the firm. Um, yeah, really. Say more. About well, that. I mean, what is a what is a a, a top tier consulting firm? But um, a bunch of people who have deep experience and expertise, and who are developing new approaches to doing things all the time. You know, is it, it the the minute we start working with a set of clients around a Toolkit um, is the minute that it starts to proliferate into the market, and the quicker that it spreads throughout a market, the faster our work becomes obsolete. You know, or our you know people don't need our support. So, this idea that we would publish it, make it simple, make it easy, share how to do it, how to do it freely, was really um, radical inside the firm. On the other hand, um, we, we knew, we knew that we would learn faster if we made it available to more people. And if we, um, created a bit of a community around it, 
And hmm. we could we could learn from the experiences even of companies that we weren't working with, that weren't paying us. And so contrary to what some of the, I'll call them the NPS doubters or haters would, would say, we we never we don't make money when somebody uses net promoter. It's not actually the only interest we have in it. Well, we have two interests. One is uh, we kind of hope that it makes the world a better place, that actually people will create better experiences for their customers and make their lives a little better. But um, the other is that uh, the more people use it, the further ahead the state of the art advances, the more impactful it is. And as long as we can stay at the center of that and learn along with people that are doing this, there are companies, large companies that need help when they want to implement the net promoter system quickly and effectively. And there's nobody in the world who knows more about it than us. So that's our interest. Yeah. And I'm just going to pull another gem out of what you just said there is sometimes what seems so counterintuitive, which is to give things away, if you will, make it open, actually comes out, you know, you're helping everyone else, but it comes out helping you in the long run. And, and in this case, I think it really has. It's it's helped. Bain has always been known as outstanding, outstanding on uh, customer strategy understanding customers' needs and and uh, making use of that understanding in things like M&A, uh, private equity investments, mergers, cost-cutting, you know, transformations. I think nobody does a better job. And, and, and you know, it's long been our, our reputation, but um, mm. by by being at the center of something like net promoter system and the customer experience movement that it, it helped accelerate and foster, I think it further burnished our reputation in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I want to, I want to um, dive a little bit deeper into the application of net promoter. And I, I want to pull out, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit from the book. Um, and, um, and, as we think about if you're, again, if you're in the shoes of a CEO or a business leader um, and you're in today's environment. Um, so it, the, the quote is, is something like this. We live in a world that's struggling to define each day as post-COVID. This is my part of the quote. Technology, big data seem to have taken center stage. And I can think of, I can't think of too many corporate town halls that don't echo the words digital transformation. <laughs> so... So where does uh, customer experience play a role in all of this? Well, first of all, um, you know, just make sure we all, we're all on the same page about what constitutes customer experience. Customer experience is, in, in, the, in its broadest sense, uh, the impression that is formed in the mind of a customer from every interaction they have with your products and your brand and your services. And the you know there are lots of factors in what constitutes a good versus a not so good versus a terrible experience there's the amount of effort it takes there's the extent to which it satisfies the fundamental needs you have there's the degree to which it um is unexpectedly good in some material way and uh digital 
transformation or you know broad broadly across the entire economy is really amazing for customers because it makes possible self-service in places where you relied on a human and had to wait for them to answer a phone and execute something and have things lost in translation when you read them a string of numbers or an address or something it um creates opportunities for companies to serve their customers at much lower cost. It even creates now the opportunities to create dramatically more customized or personalized experiences for people than were possible in a kind of, you know, mass market environment. Mm -hmm. All of those things contribute to customer experience. And so if you, if your question is, you know, like, well, what role does net promoter play in a world that is increasingly digital? The answer is that you, we will always, always, well, I, I believe we will always rely on customers to tell us how they feel about interacting with our organizations. However, um, the, Availability of data, the ability to analyze it quickly and efficiently, the ability to keep large, long history of data on interactions and even access information that is external to our organizations, that provides an opportunity to model or predict how a customer might have reacted to a particular interaction. And then to further personalize the experience for that customer. So find ways to intervene or change their experience real time to improve it. It also creates opportunities to identify emerging patterns, problems, issues before they become huge. So in a digital world, net promoter is, has evolved to include you know what we sometimes call predictive nps but what might also be called um, personalization it might be called um, you know it, machine learning based sentiment assessment uh, you know there are lots of different ways to, to to cut it but at the end of the day the processes that are involved in the net promoter system meaning Understanding how a customer is reacting to a particular interaction, providing that information to employees who need to understand it so that they can make improvements, following up with customers when there is merit to a follow-up, and creating the right kinds of processes for continuous improvement and systemic on systemic issues. That's all the same. It's just enhanced dramatically by the availability of you know, the information from resulting from digital transformation. Yeah. So what, what would you say to someone on, in, in that light that would say, well, with all the AI and ML, which artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, um, that's available and the speed at which we can capture that, um, that um, 
that we would no longer need to ask the customer the question because we could already know by looking at the data that we've learned. Usually my question is, um, what data are you going to be looking at and over what time horizon? And how important is it to you to intervene sooner versus later? If, if things are going wrong mm-hmm. or if you have an opportunity to do something really amazing. Mm-hmm. In most cases, um, if you have a long enough time horizon, you can just look at customers' behaviors after a particular interaction, you know, in, in, in the aggregate, and you can model out the impact of that interaction on their subsequent retention, purchase velocity, purchase volume, and so on. What you don't get is the qualitative understanding of why, what about that was Mm -hmm. created that. And you also don't see that until long after the original, the interaction that generated the outcome. Because retention, for example, plays out over years, if not, you know, months. Um, Cross sell can play out over long periods of time. The resilience to price increases, you know, reduced price sensitivity plays out over long periods. So it it can be, and then if your organization isn't gigantic and you don't have masses of data, machine learning is not all that effective for, the vast majority of the interactions you have because you just don't have the quantity of data necessary. So I love the idea that we could, and I, and I want to do as much as possible, you know, without direct feedback from customers, without bothering customers and taking their time. I love that. Mm. But Mm -hmm. the reality is the practical reality is that with rare exception, we still need, customer um, sentiment. We still need customers to tell us a little bit more than we can read out of the digital data stream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when you say that, you know, it reminds me of, well, if we're going, part of our role as CX leaders is to, um, to transform, in my opinion, transform the culture of the organization, right? And embed CX into the way of doing business. And that means taking what we understand the current state is, changing it to some desired future state. And so if all we're going on is behavioral data points that are generated by AI and ML, we miss that whole really emotional component of it. Uh, going back to you and I are both cause and effect people, I think is like, we, we just really want to understand the cause of why something happened. But w- would you, would you say that would be like a missing link is, you know, we can get all this info, but we're, we're talking about changing experiences. Wouldn't emotions be important in all that? Yes. I, I will acknowledge that not always, right. There's certain things that are just mm. not, I don't need to know a lot about it. So for example, if I'm trying to pay a bill, mm. And I issue a, a, an instruction over my mobile app or something for my bank to pay a bill on a certain date. And that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, 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 what do you need to know about my emotion? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. You probably right? guess it. If I, <laughs> if I can't, if I try 18 times to log into your website and I can't, for some reason that has nothing to do with me remembering my password, 
do you really need to know what I feel? I, I you, you know that already. Mm-hmm. So, so there are plenty of situations where the, the sentiment is either obvious or not that differentiated or important. But then there are others where it is. Um, just how delightful was it to redeem your rewards points for a certain type of experience? And, and why? What about that? You know, so that we can develop additional rewards op- experiences for you to indulge in. Um, why was that interaction with the, I don't know, financial planning app that we created? Why did you like that so much relative to other things that you've done that are similar? I don't know until you tell me. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of thing. So it's 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 more relevant in places where you have the opportunity to create a promoter or where the experience is reasonably complex. And it's less important where the opposite is true. Yeah. So in terms of collecting data, Rob, and thanks for that explanation. Um, one of the challenges that I just, now that I'm thinking about, it, I just want to bring it up with you was the, was the commercial. So we had re- retail banking, we had commercial banking, we had, you know, insurance wealth, those were personal private banking. Those are personal. And my, my counterparts in other banks around the US um, experienced the same thing. It was kind of difficult to mine data from businesses for, for several reasons. Um, you know, there's different players that change in those businesses. Um, who is to be consistent across the client base, who is the person in the organization we want to be asking the question about the experience? Because the CEO or the whoever the the person who is really making the decision whether we stay or go may not have any clue as to the day to day. Um, so I'm, I'm just I'm just saying, and by the way, we also had a much lower response rate from businesses than we did um, from the retail c- customers. But what would you say to those people that said, you know, how does this play in the commercial commercial world? A couple of things. First is, um, unless you know uh, the different roles that people are playing, this is especially true in like medium sized businesses up to enterprise. Unless you know the different roles that people play and the different types of decisions in which they participate, it's very hard to interpret the feedback and, and certainly mm. a score, certainly a score, like a consolidated score at, a, at an account level is almost meaningless in most cases, um, both because of low response rate. Well, actually, let me say it a different way. It's a, it's a small population of people within an account. That's one. So even, you know, Mm -hmm. until you get to a hundred percent response, it's hard, like one more person responding can materially change the score. Um, Two, uh, response rates are not a hundred percent. So, you know, who responds and it tends to skew more junior. It tends to skew towards people who have more frequent interaction with you. So long way of saying that the score at the account level is almost meaningless. What um, I think is important is to think about these relationships as individual human beings who play different roles. There's somebody who plays a role, who, who is 
in essence, the ultimate decision maker about whether this organization will do business with your organization. That might be the CEO. There's somebody else who, who might determine in, in some places might determine which services we will use this year. Hmm. There may be yet another person who decides how much of service X we use versus from you versus some other bank that we're doing business with. And there's yet another person or set of people who on a day-to-day basis execute the transactions and interactions that are involved in using your services. So until you understand those different roles and who's playing which, hard to do anything. And then until you treat them as individuals and think about what their feedback means, what kind of follow-up you should do with them, how you want to use the feedback to enhance the relationship with them as an individual, you know, you're just, you're just playing games, I think. And, and a lot of organizations do that. They just blindly send out surveys and collect scores. And then they imagine that they're meaningful. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. for B2B, the net promoter system, the act, the learning and action is dramatically more important than the score. Mm. Well said. Well said. Th- thanks for that. And and since you said the word blindly, you know, going about going about it, um, I remembered the question. I, I framed it wrong the first time when I asked a question about us in a post-COVID world. The quote from the book, um, I, th- I still want to ask the question because I think it's really important. Um, and, I, and I'll start off by saying th- one of the challenges we, we had in the last, up until this, the, the economy started to change, um, is that many, many, uh, and I think about financial services, but many industries were buoyed by the economy and, and a good, strong economy and all sorts of things. And complacency um, was one of my biggest adversaries in, in my role as a CX pro. Maybe, maybe there's a different sort of challenge about happening now and things are, the sands are shifting in a different direction. But as I read in the book, it's, it talked about new stores, promotions, steep price discounts, merger and acquisition, technology breakthroughs, monopolies can all mask. They can all uh, grow. You can have great business performance um, and weak MPS scores. So even technology breakthroughs can create growth surges. So why does it still make sense to segment customers and understand customers in, uh, as, the, as the tide goes in and out and the waves well, I think you have to think about it in um, the terms of a competitive environment in order to, for that to make any sense at all. Absolute growth may be a function of a great economy. It may be a function of an amazing product breakthrough for your company or in the industry overall. It may be a function of um, the collapse of an adjacent industry for some reason that has nothing to do with you. What's important is, are you gaining share of the customer's needs that you serve? Are you growing your penetration of the market? Are you growing your penetration of their wallets relative to the alternatives that they have available? 
And what competitive benchmark net promoter scores, like we do from NPS Prism as, a, as an example, a benchmarking service that we started, what those do is give you insight into um, where you stand with your customers relative to where competitors stand with their own and why and what drives differences. And over long periods of time, not, not short periods of time, but over long periods of time, we can see dramatic differences ex- in revenue growth rates, in uh, profit growth rates explained by or significant portion explained by differences in competitive benchmark NPS. That's that's why it matters. And, and, you know the other the other way to look at it is through the lens of an investor. If if you know, well, let me say it a different way because it may be changing as investors get smarter. But but ten years ago, if you knew which companies had led their industry in net promoter score for three or more years leading up to that point you would and you invested in those companies relative to the other companies in their markets you'd outperform the S&P 500 by two two and a half times which by the way over the last 10 years would be pretty good and you would mm. outperform uh companies in that market by a little bit more than that on total shareholder return so as an investment strategy it's a really smart thing in relative terms. Good economy, everybody looks smart. Downturn, that's where loyalty leaders gain share hand over fist and where the, the, the winners and losers are even more starkly revealed. Yeah. What, what, what you're referring well, to is something and- we call satisfactory underperformance. It's we're growing, everything looks good, and what we don't yeah. know is that we could have been growing, you know, 10 or, or 15 percentage points faster if we were a loyalty leader. Yeah. And that, and that's really, really important. And I think as, as we think about where the economy is right now, what would you say in, in board executive boardrooms all around the country and probably all over the world, um, there are decisions being made about 2023 and beyond about budgets. Uh, probably at this point, we're uh, heading toward the end of the year as we're recording this podcast, but those decisions are being made. Um, what would you say to those those people who may have the CX program uh, and department on the chopping block? What would you say? That might be a rational decision, by the way. If you're fighting, if your company's fighting for its survival, customer experience improvements um, have... F- positive financial impact over a long time horizon. Cost cuts have a big financial Im- impact today. You know, and price price increases have a big financial impact today. So if 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 it's really about the survival of the company, that could be a very rational decision. Anything short of that, I'd be asking the question, what are we doing today to protect and and double down on the investments we're making in our most important, most profitable customer relationships while we take other actions to reduce our costs or to grow our revenue. 
how and and that's where the cx team plays a significant and important role and if you're a cx professional in today's environment you should be a you know proactively serving up opportunities to protect the revenue and the profitability of the 5% of your customers who generate 50% of your revenue and profits which is part of the 80/20 rule right it's like a small even mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um I'd be doing that. I'd be as a as a CX professional. You want to you want to keep your job. You want to keep your department. Proactively identify things that the organization can do to protect those relationships, or to enhance them, or to earn more revenue from those clients. And and by by narrowing it down to that, the five percent of the customers who generate the vast majority, or you know, the fifty percent of revenue and profit, you actually make your job easier in terms of exploration and understanding. Because it's a small number of customers with big opportunity. You know, I, ha- I had this a similar conversation with uh, Dr. Peter Fader from Wharton, um, who just wrote the customer base audit. And I know this whole idea of customer lifetime value and um, corporate based, you know, customer based corporate valuation are near and dear to both both your hearts. And I, it, it's interesting that. Um, you know, whenever I bring this up to the general public of people who are not in the CX world, and I say, no, all customers should not be treated the same. Uh, and really, for the reasons you just described, I get this polarized response, like visceral response. And w- what's your reaction to that? It's naive to say that you you mm. can and should treat all customers the same. You don't. Mm. You just don't. You may think you do. You may think that that's a, a, a ethical, moral value of your organization, but in practice, you don't. So the question really is, um, is it moral and ethical to treat every customer the same? Is it is it moral and ethical for you to invest as much money, as much of your resources in low or even negative lifetime value customers as you do in high value customers. Because when you do that, what you're doing is you're saying, it is moral and ethical for me to take a subsidy from the most valuable customers and apply that subsidy, take money out of their pockets and reinvest it in the low value customers. When you could be sharing the economic value that your best customers create with them, either in the form of discounts, which I don't love, or in the form of a better experience or better products or better service. Those are, I think, moral, ethical decisions that are rational. And I think it's actually a false belief in the morality or the ethics of serving all customers equally well, where you think it's okay to take money out of the pockets of your best customers and hand it in the form of service or price or whatever to low value customers, customers who don't help you grow the business, don't help you create better products, don't help you create more jobs. Yeah. 
One of, one of the things I mentioned to him as um, to, to Dr. Fader um, was, isn't it true that if you are focused on making the experience better for your top customers, your, your segment, and he broke them down into deciles, right? Into deciles. And um, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be true, though, if you're designing a better experience for them, that whatever you invented in terms of the new experience would also most likely that I call it the Tang effect, you know, buoy the rest of your customer base, meaning we went to the moon and we invented things like titanium and Tang <laughs> for the astronauts. And so we all got to drink Tang as a result of that. Um, don't, don't you think there would be some tremendous learnings from going through that process that could benefit the rest of the customer? There base? would be, and there is, um, you know, some some of the earliest work I I did when I was a young consultant at Bain 30 years ago was identifying the best customers of a uh, retail financial services firm, understanding how much they were worth relative to the other customers, understanding the demands that the lower value customers put on the business and helping the organization discover how to serve the best customers better, and importantly, which of the things we were creating for best customers would also improve the experience for the rest of the customer base. And then I repeated that same work again and again and again at company after company. Pete, Pete Fader did a tremendous job of articulating what has long been the strategy of loyalty leading companies, successful, profitable, growing companies, when he wrote his book, Customer Centricity, a few years ago. And, and yeah. this idea that you need to serve some customers better, that you need products that are tuned to their needs. It's, it's absolutely crucial. And there are, there are maybe Maybe there are a couple of exceptions to that. I haven't run into them in 30 something years of doing this work, I'll, but I'll allow that there might be. I just think that it's yeah. a it generally naive point of view to say all customers are, are should be treated equally. Yeah. Well, that was, that brought up a lot of really interesting things. You can't, um, you, you, I, I have no emotion around that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could tell. I could tell. I mean, it took me a while for me to wrap my head around it. And then when I did it, well, light bulbs were going off and I started to, I don't know. I like sports. I like watching professional sporting events and I can't help but think about the sky booth, you know, I, and at, at the time I lived in Maryland. So back when the Orioles had a winning team and they did pretty good this year. Um, they had, they had rebuilt this stadium Camden yards. It wasn't too long after the new, and they had these beautiful sky boxes. And, and I thought, well, how much is a sky box? You know, it was in the tens of thousands of dollars to, to get a sky box. You could fit, I don't know, 40 customers in there, give them a beautiful and more than corporations are more than happy to, to pay for it. Um, I probably would have bought more of the catering. Who knows how much that. So, but the point is that it may, it probably had something to do with number one, the team being able to stay in the city they're in and survive, right? If you think about uh, smaller market towns like Milwaukee and I don't know Cleveland and some smaller markets, and 
And then you think about, you know, how it could make the ticket price, you know, more affordable for those in, unless it was price gouging. But generally speaking, assuming that there's some level of ethics and, and they want to fill a stadium and put a winning team on the field, et cetera, it, 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 it does benefit the masses. I'd say another, another um, way to think about this is in, in most businesses, the new products and services you develop are more expensive when they're delivered at small scale and when they're yeah. early on in their life cycle. You just, th- th- something called the experience curve is a sort of well known fact. And it's actually the idea behind Moore's law, for example, right? The more experience you, that you have with in a company, the more experience you have in an industry, um, the lower the cost to deliver something is. And so, you know, those products and services that are developed, funded by those best customers, but made available to everyone else, often are advantageous because they're offered at such scale. They, you, they drive the cost of those expensive things down. What did Tesla do with the introduction of the electric vehicle for, that, that it did? It offered these crazy expensive cars at the beginning. Why? Because they were early in the experience curve of developing the batteries and the other elements of the technology required, the charging system required, right? And it wasn't for several years until they introduced a much more um, affordable vehicle, the Model 3. That's a good example of sort of saying, I'm going to start at the top of the market and then I'm going to proliferate the availability of something. It might not be exactly as good as the high-end version for my best customers, but it's going to make lives better for a broader market because I developed it first for these customers who were worth enough to make that investment rational. Yeah. Well, well said, well said. Wow. Such incredibly interesting, fascinating topics we're, we're, and, and what I, we're talking about. And what I love about you, Rob, is you have the ability to make the complex Simple, uh, simple enough even for me to understand. I, I've got two more questions for you, and then we're gonna we're gonna have to call it a day. I could literally talk to you all day. Um, so, number one is when you when you reflect back on your career, um, and you're thinking about uh, a new person coming through. Maybe they're a CX professional. Maybe they're coming to think about joining Bain like you were way back when. What's one lesson your job has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? I'd say that the most important lesson I've learned personally is that um, you don't really know why something worked until you know the conditions under which it doesn't work. So people Mm. too often attribute successes to what they did and they think they know why they were successful or why a product or why a new process or whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. that misattribution often results in the application of that lesson or of a wrong, of an inappropriate lesson in another place that is not appropriate for that. And, and I know that uh, mm. I probably didn't say it 
as elegant, elegantly or smoothly as, as I would love to eventually, but it's, it's just this, this <laughs> idea that, um, you don't know why you were successful at first. So approach the world with a little more humility, a little bit more, mm. a little less hubris and a little more yeah. curiosity. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that is a powerful lesson. Both of both of them. I mean, what you said, understand, and this kind of goes back to the cause and effect uh, thing is really understand why you had the success. What was behind that? What was the root cause behind it? And also that requires some curiosity and humility. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question I'm going to have, and then we'll, we'll, um, I'll ask people how they might, if they want to get a hold of you or the best way to reach you. Um, but what are three books that you would recommend to my audience and why? Well, you know, aside from the, the books that I had a hand in, um, the yeah. one that I recommend the most often to people is Never Split the Difference it's by Chris Voss. It's a hmm. negotiation book. And it's just super practical. You know, we've all, anybody who's been to business school or, or is sort of classically trained in negotiation knows the concepts of negotiation from an analytic perspective. And what Chris Voss does really well is he uh, introduces the human element exceptionally well. I, I think it's, I think if more people understood the lessons he's trying to teach, everyone would do, would have a better time <laughs> negotiating uh, <laughs> things. And it, it, it's, it doesn't, it, it's not like it's advantageous for one person to have it and not the other. Like it's, if, if both sides have it, it's good. Um, yeah. A second book is a book that's kind of wonky, but it's called the nature of technology. And I, I wish I could remember the author, but what I like about it is that it breaks down um, the elements of discovery and technology and innovation into components that make sense. And it differentiates between things like observable phenomena and inventions, which are usually, um, you know, combinations of things like the really impactful ones are combinations of things that already existed in new ways. Uh, mm. And then um, the last one I would say is kind of like, um, it's just, an, it's maybe it's because I got to know Clay Christensen um, a few years ago, but he wrote a book called How to Measure Your Life. And um, it's not, in some ways, it's not that different from like Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, but but it's just a nice short book kind of helps you step back and ask yourself the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? And where am I spending my time? And is that where I should be spending my time? Um, I just, I, you know, maybe it's because I'm getting older that I think a little bit more about that. Life is, be life is more obviously finite as I, as I age. <laughs> so, Well, well, the, que the question really was, what would you, some lessons somebody should learn at some point in their life. And I think those, those uh, books are, are really prolific and, and profound. And, but I think this, this one you're just talking about is I'd rather learn that lesson earlier on than later on. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? I think so. And I think that, um, honestly, you know, there've been points in my life where 
I was a little less deliberate about where I spent my time and what I was trying to do. Um, we probably all are. And, and so yeah. um, it's just good to remind yourself every now and then to step back and ask that question. Yeah. Yeah. That's, those are great. Well, uh, just so much to unpack here. I am, I have been so fortunate and blessed to have you on the show, Rob. Um, if, if our audience would like to connect with you, get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Um, I, I think I heard Pete Fader say, you know, just Google me. Uh, that's one, that's one easy way, yeah. but, um, there's a, there's a little website I keep, which is, you know, just Rob robmarkey.com is super easy it links back to bain it links back to some stuff about net promoter about customer value um, or you can just go onto the bain and company site and find out how to contact me and and i would um also highly advocate for the net promoter system podcast um, if you haven't listened to that and you're at all interested in this topic, you must listen to his podcast and he is a, uh, a great podcaster. Thank you, Mark. I, I, that, that's coming from somebody who I respect as a podcaster. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the delighted customers podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.